Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, background checking your open source with Michael Melberg, CEO of Dark Sky Technologies. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, Michael, when we first talked, I was really enamored with what you guys do, which we'll get to in a second. But first off, I know my audience wants to know a little bit more about you and where you come from and what you're doing now. Uh, yeah, happy to share. I, I, uh, I, boy, I've been in technology for as long as I can remember. Uh, started when I was about 12 years old. I had a friend that was working on a Compaq computer, which is kind of a you know, compact with a Q, if you remember. That. I remember I that. Was, oh, yeah. It's a funny name because this thing was huge. It had a handle on the back, but it probably weighed 50 pounds. But, but you could carry it around. It was compact, right? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> exactly right. And he, he had programmed this game. I think he called it Immortal Combat. There were two stick figures that were fighting each other. And I was just floored that you could that you could do that. You know, I never thought about where programs came from. And so I started programming, you know, he helped me learn. I started programming and I knew right then I was going to get into software developments, making video games all through high school. And then finally uh, ended up at Purdue University studying computer science um, and, and left there to go right into industry where I was working on basically DOD software uh, protecting, uh, you know, weapon systems against tampering and, and reverse engineering. So I got a crash course on how to reverse engineer software at the first company I did an internship with. And uh, I love solving problems. It, it turned out to be at least good enough to keep my job there. <laughs> and uh, from there, just, you know, got into the whole industry and, and protecting software, protecting weapon systems, um, and uh, have been, you know, learning ever since. And, and I'm still learning. Cybersecurity is one of those things that it's kind of a never-ending job. There's always some new attack out there and some new way to to defend against it. Well, it does it does keep us actually busy, right? It keeps us employed, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I guess we do we attribute it, we like the hackers out there causing us uh, to have no, probably not. Uh, <laughs> There's plenty of other not. problems to solve without them sure. creating more, problem, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. So, so, so tell I, me a little bit about. When I first talked to you, I went, wow, I never thought of this about the whole open source. There's a big push right now on securing the software supply chain um, out there. Open source is a big aspect of that. Tell me your guys' approach to helping secure the software supply chain. Yeah, I, I guess um, I guess it would help to kind of to see what I've seen over the past 20 or so years when I when I first got started we were really just focused on protecting operating system or even, even applications, right? Just a single application. If it had some data in it or some algorithm that was particularly sensitive, you know, we wanted to protect it because if an attacker got hands on, then, you know, they would understand it or they would, they would be able to reveal, uh, you know, the secrets that were in, in the software. And so, uh, we started with, with just applications, um, started then protecting bigger systems, right? Operating systems and, and things of that nature. 
And over time, the uh, open source development community just started exploding. Um, and so while we were learning, you know, how to both break in and defend, break into and defend systems, there were just thousands and thousands of packages being put out there by the whole open source community, which was phenomenal because first thing you do as a developer is you go looking for, you know, somebody who's already solved the problem yeah. so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, so uh, eventually, you know, it, it came to a point where, all right, well, there's a lot of operating systems out there. There's constantly problems within operating systems how do you really make a secure one, right? You can patch all this stuff on after the fact. Um, but what if you miss something, right? It, it's, uh, it's a tough game, a cat and mouse game that we play with the attacker. And unfortunately, it's, it's in the attacker's favor most of the time because we have to get every single, we have to get, we have to catch every single bug and every vulnerability in order to protect the system wholly, which is an impossible task most of the time. Whereas an attacker only has to find one. They only have to find problem. one. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. they're, and then they're in. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you really make a secure system uh, from the ground up? Well, everybody's using open source, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, Linux is huge. It's in every system that's out there just about. And, um, but how do you secure it from the ground up? And we kind of <clears throat> came to this realization that boy, if we can't, if we can't trust the uh, developers who are are developing the software, that's kind of the foundation of it, right? Is we trust our developers, then how do we actually trust the code that we would want to use from all of these different open source packages? And so that's kind of how we, uh, I guess, came to where we are today. First starting on embedded system security, just focused on the application, then kind of broadening our view to how do we secure the whole operating system. And now we're really looking at kind of fundamental trust issues. And when I first started uh, supply chain, software supply chain, I don't think was uttered once um, in any conversation <laughs> that we had. Um, and only recently, right, have people really started talking about it. And I think it's just because there truly is a software supply chain now. There are you know, just an enormous number of packages and developers out there that are all contributing both from within organizations and without organizations, um, creating this supply chain of, of people who develop systems, um, in some cases unknowingly, right? They're just developing a package elsewhere in the world. They have no idea that it's being used in, in really critical systems. Well, so and that, that brings up something interesting that you said, um, you have to trust your developers. Right. Mm -hmm. So typically I know when I got hired on at my first job, oh my goodness, the, the vetting that they did uh, for me was outrageous. Right. I had psychological profile done. I had um, background checks. I had security checks done all this stuff so that the company knew who they were bringing in and writing um, software and specifically for me, it was for medical imaging was, was my first job out of college. So mm -hmm. they were ultra cautious. Um, but we just go and download some open source package off the internet, right? right? We don't know right. who wrote that stuff. We have no idea right. if they have a bent towards doing something malicious or nefarious. Sure. I mean, we go to, to great lengths to, to, trust the people that we bring into our organizations. And then, 
you know, I, I have development background. What's the first thing you do is you go and try and find somebody who's already done it and they are probably not inside your organization. They probably not. Yep. Probably haven't been checked or looked at. Um, and you know, 99 point whatever percent of those people are probably developing open source for the right reasons. They're putting their code out there. They're sharing it. Um, that's, that's the amazing aspect of it. Uh, but there's also kind of, you know, the few that can ruin it for the rest of us. And, um, and you don't know, you just don't know what, you know, what you're getting because you haven't put anybody through that, that type of process. So is, is that why you guys kind of shifted your focus from, from, protecting embedded systems to operating to systems to getting down to the core, which is, can I trust the person actually writing the code? Is that where that, is that yeah. why you got to that? Yeah, it really is because, um, I mean, still the ultimate focus is getting a system out there that is secure and, you know, accomplishes whatever mission uh, that, that it needs to accomplish. But as we're building it, uh, you know, because we're pulling in from all of these different places, software packages, you know, left, right, up and down from all over the world. Boy, if we can't, if we can't trust those um, and, you know, our assertion is that you, you can't because you don't know who is who has worked on it. You got to at least look at it and make sure that you're not pulling in, a, you know, a problem, either an intentional or, uh, or a maliciously inserted problem into, you know, what are really, really critical systems to either, you know, national security or economics or whatever it, it may be. Well, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't people argue, well, I test, I test the software, mm -hmm. right? I've tested the yeah. software. It passes all of, all of the tests that I run to make sure there are no vulnerabilities or anything like that. Or yeah. maybe you do a code review. Do you go line by line on open source code? I don't know very oh, many man. people that do. No, I don't. You know, we we talked about that a lot, and in so many cases, you just can't. I mean, the Linux, the kernel, the Linux kernel alone has almost it's maybe exceeded thirty million lines of code. That's amazing. And if you have an enterprise distribution, uh, you know, something like Red Hat, you're talking about a hundred million lines of code or more. It's just untenable to review all of that, um, you know, with human beings at least. So you do, you apply tools to it to try and see if you can catch vulnerabilities. Um, and those tools, they absolutely, they still have to remain in our, in our pipelines. Right? So we're not getting rid of those tools. We still need those tools. Absolutely. Yeah. If, you know, we can identify so many past vulnerabilities, uh, we don't want to see them again, right? As a developer, you copy and paste code. You may unintentionally copy a vulnerability that's already been detected in one package and you're using it over here in another, a software assurance tool ought to be able to, uh, to find identify that. that immediately and, and, and root it out. So, the, uh, so the then why, then why even care about who's contributing if these tools out there are looking at things? What, what danger is there in having a developer that's malicious if I'm scanning their code anyway? Yeah. So the trouble is, uh, I don't know the latest numbers off the top of my head, but there's some dozens of new vulnerabilities that are discovered every single day. Right. And so that tells, 
me and you know tells kind of the cybersecurity community of experts that there's something that we're not catching. There's something that's 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 in there that's getting in there that we're not able to identify up front. Because if we could identify it up front, we would root those out and you'd see, you know, zero new CD. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There's also, you know, some more nefarious things that could happen. Um, you know, switches that that get flipped um, at the behest of some attacker where you don't know if if there's any kind of malicious code in there until that switch is flipped, until they've... Oh, like a runtime switch even? Yeah, something like that. Um, I think those are probably going to be few and far between, but these are the creative creative things yeah. that you can do as an attacker to, to try and inject malicious code. Um, I think the, you know, the real, the real point is if, if you don't know where that code is coming from, which you don't, if you're just grabbing it from anywhere, then you don't really know what you're, what you're pulling in. Um, and given that there are so many new vulnerabilities every day, uh, given that there are, you know, millions, millions of uh, developers out there, we just don't, know anything about and, and some very small percentage of them that can kind of upset the apple cart for the rest of us. It's worth taking a look to make sure that, you know, a package that you pull in doesn't have uh, something that was something that was injected uh, maliciously. So you said something interesting. There's there's a, a bunch of us that depend on a small number of packages that could affect lots of things. Log4j is a great example, right? When the Log4j mm -hmm. vulnerability came out. Um, there was another package, and I can't I can't remember the name off the top of my head in the Node.js community that almost everyone depended on, either directly or indirectly depended on. Um, oh sure. That was maintained by one person. Right. There's quite a few of those, actually. Yeah. So, whoa. <laughs> when you I think know. Of, and 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 it, it popped up because this one person was like. Everyone's making money off of me. Where's my <laughs> Where's my take? That happens a lot. It, you know, I even used to think of of open source. You think of um, open source as a community of people that are all you know all eyes on this one package, and and you're going to have security experts in there, as well as programming experts and memory experts, and they're all going to point out. When you put this package out there in the open, they're going to point out where the problems are. Hey, you're using memory wrong over here. Hey, this is a vulnerability that we've already seen before. Don't program it that way. At the end of the day, a huge, huge percentage of packages are really being developed and maintained by just one or in some cases a handful of people. There's big packages for sure, like OpenSSL, a, a crypto package being developed by hundreds of developers or the open uh, Java development kit, I think, has some 600 plus active developers, but most packages, and when I say most, I mean a, a double digit large percentage of packages are maintained by one, by one or two people. <laughs> is that something, yeah. is that something that, well, obviously we're concerned about, is that something that you can identify easily identify yeah most of the time that information is is available the uh who is actively contributing to it you just go uh, on github who, most of the time right or GitLab or wherever they're sure, yeah, that, that's there and available um and even who is who is inactive meaning they've contributed in the past and they are no longer making contributions and so all of those can be kind of 
um, interesting pieces of data that you can you can see a timeline of history. You can start to uh, understand how supported or unsupported a particular package is, and and that may be a risk for your program if you have a really critical program that you're working on, and you have uh, you know this one piece of software, no matter how small, that is just a a critical piece uh, to that, you know, Jenga stack of blocks that you have in your in your entire software stack. You don't want that thing falling out from under you and causing the rest of it to topple. Um, so it's worth knowing how supported it is. It's it's worth knowing a little bit about where it comes from and and who's worked on it. You know that I, I just on who's worked on it too. You could because I I know there's uh, developers out there contributors to open source that work on similar packages at the lower levels or framework levels. And the, and these are very prolific um, programmers that work mm -hmm. across several different packages at the same time. Sure. Right. And they're contributing. I, I think it would be fascinating to, to take a software package and break it down and see the, the number of contributors you have on open source mm -hmm. and then see who your biggest contributor is of, of the full software stack. Uh, by number oh, of yeah. packages or lines of code, whatever. I think that would be fascinating to look at because you could easily see who you're mostly dependent on an individual. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Some, and some, when you say prolific, some people are, we have, we have visualizations uh, that we've, we've created by looking at this in different ways that show some people are making, you know, tens of thousands or in some cases, hundreds of thousands of contributions it could be as something as small as a you know a, a change to a character in a line of code or something as big as a check-in of a function, but tens of thousands of of changes, additions, or removals to open source packages. They really, truly are prolific, and it's fascinating to see, uh, you know, how the whole community kind of comes together, and and then certain people who are you know they're kind of the whales uh, for for a particular package are really influencing things. Wow, that's. Now, here's another question. What motivates? Because there's some motivation behind developer. I'm a software developer too, uh, Michaels. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, and I've contributed to open source. What's that motivation for someone to spend that much time and effort? Well, I mean, I can speak from experience is when I get a problem, you know, a technical problem that I have that I can solve with, with programming, I just can't stop until I solve it. And, and I, I think that's part of it. Um, I, there's definitely a tremendous feeling of satisfaction that you get from open source and contributing back to the community uh, by, by seeing a lot of people use the package that you've created. Yeah, um, you're, you're right. When, when, I've, when I've written a package or something and, and the number goes above 10,000, you're like, yes, look how cool I am, right? It's like, exactly. I'm contributing yeah. to society, right? People are downloading right. my stuff. It's awesome. That's right. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the unfortunate uh, side of it, that very same, I think, I think that very same set of motivations can also uh, contribute to the attacker side of things as well. Where, oh, look at this Log4j, for example, you mentioned earlier, millions and millions of, of, instances of that package out there in the wild i bet they were uh, head over heels happy about how widely spread how you know, they, that, oh yeah that particular uh, uh vulnerability was so in fixing it you know uh 
was one of the most important things that we did quickly because of how widespread that that was. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, so tell me a little bit about what um, Dark Sky Technology is doing in this space because we kind of touched a little bit on it. Um, so if if I wanted um, your guys' services, what what sort of help could you give me to see my open source um, vulnerabilities? I, I'm going to call it, maybe it's not vulnerabilities, maybe it's exposure. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, really a, a risk or a, a, a measurement of trust. Measurement so of trust. I like that even better. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's maybe best illustrated with uh, an example. There was a package last year. Uh, you can look it up. It's a, there was a Reuters article that came out about this package called Pushwush. And Pushwush um, is kind of a sophisticated notification package. If you wanted to, to uh, you know, put notifications in an application that you were developing and you didn't want to do that yourself, you know, you could integrate Pushwush in there. Well, the Army and the CDC had integrated Pushwish into multiple applications. I think the CDC has said seven or eight that they had put it in. Not sure how many for the Army, but they had they had put this in there and they were using it. Um, and by the looks of it, uh, Pushwish was an American company. They were, you know, uh, American run headquartered, I, I think, in California with offices in Maryland and, and, um, and somewhere else in the United States. Come to find out, they were actually not headquartered in America. They were headquartered in Moscow. They were paying taxes in Moscow. Uh, they had developers in Siberia uh, and some in Thailand as well. And so you don't even have to know if there is a single vulnerability in that package to immediately know that you want to remove it from the applications <laughs> yeah. that are in your, your systems and software. And that's what the Army CD, uh, and the CDC did is they removed it. And that was what led to that Reuters article. Holy smokes, right? There's potentially Russian influence in our, in our applications that we had to get rid of because of this. Well, that's, that's really interesting because I could see this is a, the open source community could be easily infiltrated by nation state bad actors. Sure. Uh, you know, well, and, and we all know some of the best programmers in the world are coming out of, out of Russia, Estonia. Um, they've got great programmers in that area. So I would, I would guess that they are contributing to open source. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that any avenue that a, a you know, foreign state actor could use to infiltrate or, or get some sort of, you know, meaningful advantage over technology that they're going to do it. They're going to leverage. Uh, you yeah. have to assume that, right. That's the, the game that you play. So Pushwish, um, you know, the first thing that we did when we saw that article is that we, we plugged it into our own tools because a lot of the tools that we've developed are aimed at automatically detecting trust issues like that. Um, and so we plugged it in, tools went out, did their analysis. They looked at different sources uh, of intelligence that are out there, open sources of intelligence, um, and made a determination that, holy smokes, you know, there is an enormous effort inside of Russia to develop this particular push-push application or uh, uh, package. And there is uh, no development out of the United States. And so 
that's a red flag. You know, right away you're telling me you're an American company, but you don't have a single uh, you know piece of development happening out of there. So I was able to detect sort of trust issues like that and raise a warning flag and say, hey, not so sure about this. Open source is developed all over the world. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. There's, like you said, there's right. plenty of very good Russian uh, developers uh, or any nationality for that matter who are contributing to open source. But when you say you're one thing and, and you're actually another- That's an that issue. Is it, that's, that's potentially- So what, what, other, what other trust issues do you guys evaluate? I mean, lo- location- I, I, of course, location is going to be built into the in, into that trust, whether we like it or not, right? Mm-hmm. The yeah. federal uh, Department of Defense is not going to use open source that was developed in China or Russia right now or North Korea. Sure, they're just not right. right. So that's one trust. What other do you score? Do you um, how do you evaluate a contributor? It's it's really. It's really quite difficult, and, and we, uh, in fact, do not want to be in the, the business of scoring because every program is going to be a little bit different, right? Okay. You're going to have, uh, there's going to be some uh, absolute no's, right? If you have a developer from a sanctioned company or country, no, yeah. you, I won't play on that right away. Um, the rest of it, though, uh, can be quite a bit, you know, gray, uh, so to say. You've got some programs that are going to say absolutely no to this country, you know, having any development influence or absolutely no to this uh, company having any sort of development influence. And you've got other programs that, you know, they don't care. They're not as they're not as sensitive. And so it really is up to the the program or the business unit um, or the company itself to determine what their business and security requirements are. I think the government is um, is coming around. You've probably seen recently with the executive order and the the follow-up memorandum about software bill of materials, there's really a push for software supply chain security. Uh, And in that memorandum, they even mention um, having a risk framework. And it wasn't particularly well-defined what that risk framework is. I think we're going to get to a nice definition here, you know, in the coming months or year. Uh, Once that definition happens, we might be able to say, all right, there's some there's there's some quantitative things that we can do here to uh, alert ourselves if we run into these issues. This country is a no. This t- you know somebody who's contributed multiple CVEs is a no. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, so you can. What attributes do you can you report on? Not necessarily scoring, but you are reporting on attributes like um, this guy contributed or this programmer contributed and it resulted in a CVE, and that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Like if you ran it on me, it might say, you know, Darren has a 25%, you know, CVE generator, right? I'm a CVE (laughs) generator. That would be bad, right? I don't want to use any of his code anymore because he writes crappy code, right? Right, right. Yeah. Can you get down uh, to that level where I can look at, hey, you know, correlation between Darren checking in code into open source and CVEs coming up on his code, right? I mean- you can get yeah, down to that yeah. level. You know, I don't know if there's anybody out there doing it, but multiple CVEs would certainly be a, 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 a fine. And again, okay. that may be intentional or or not intentional, right? So, like I said, you copy paste code yeah. all the time. 
if there's a piece of code you're using over and over again. A chat GPT wrote it for me. That's what I'm going to plug. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. Chat GPT did it. Uh, what, what about going beyond just programming, right? What about looking in? Because uh, they do this, they they do this all the time with employees. They they look at financial records. They look at right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, I don't know I, if companies are still doing drug testing or not. Um, obviously, you can't do a virtual drug test. Um, <laughs> sure, but you can look at criminal records. You can look at a, a whole bunch of things. Is that something yeah. that you you see valuable? Is that something you guys can do as well? Is reach into the public side of things as well? I mean, yeah. If you think about uh, if you think about you know just the profile, the internet profile on yourself, or if I think about the internet profile on, on myself, right? I have a I have a LinkedIn profile. I'm on Reddit. I'm on GitHub, and and you start to look at all the different pieces of information that are available. What skills do I have? Um, you know, I, I don't, I have some work history in the field of cryptography, but I probably shouldn't be developing any crypto algorithms. Uh, I definitely shouldn't be developing any uh, kernel level, you know, oh, gotcha. Linux drivers, for example. So I might be able to look at that and say, well, this person is kind of out of their element and the quality of the code that they write is pretty low and they're associated with this malicious website over here and you start to to build up and say i i, I want to look at what they're what writing. they're writing right they i got to make sure i can't review 30 million lines of of linux kernel code but i could look at their you know a dozen lines that they've contributed and you know just make sure that everything looks okay and and say yeah thumbs up we had a little flag here but we're gonna uh we're gonna swipe that away because it looks like it's okay we've had eyes on it so you're not just looking at my contributions you're also looking you're doing a background check on open source developers you could say that we're in 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 for the purposes of of finding those uh developers who would intend to you know create malicious harm well yeah, com yeah. companies do that to, companies do that when yeah. they hire someone right you have to yeah 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 and right i've had background checks done on me and and rightly so and and if the first thing that i did was step in the door uh uh, of a company that now trusts me because of that background check and the references that they've talked to. And I start pulling in code from all over the place and they don't know where that came from. I wasn't the one that wrote it. Somebody else. Yeah. Did, and they, they have no idea where it's coming from. No, that's, that's somewhat scary. So yeah. if people want to find out more about um, this whole concept, I, I love uh, trusting open source contributors. That does that mm. just kind of, um, wh where do they find out more information uh, and, and where can they contact you to engage if, if this is a concern of theirs? Yeah, uh, we're on uh, darkskytechnology.com is our, uh, is our homepage. We spend a lot of time on, on LinkedIn. That's a great way to, you know, direct message us. If you search dark sky technology, you'll, you'll find us and you can send us a message or interact with our content. We're, we're really big on, uh, you know, kind of spreading the word and and just opening up the things that we've learned about cybersecurity and reverse engineering over the past 20 years and sharing it with the community. And 
you know, trying to help uh, bring awareness and understanding that open source is a phenomenally great thing that's just done amazing. It's done amazing things in technology space, um, but we shouldn't just, you know, blindly Blind trust, trust it and it. grab it and put it into our systems, especially for those really critical systems that are either, you know, supporting our warfighter or maybe responsible for, our, you know, healthcare, financial. financial. I mean, yeah, the list yeah. is long. Right. Yeah. Right. So, well, yeah, so those would be two great places. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, thank you for coming on the show. This is, this is exciting. This is interesting to me. Right. Very, very it's interesting very, topic. It's very interesting. It, it, it's, uh, it's so much fun to, to be engaged, at, you know, kind of at the root level of, of, of trust, right? Because if we can build that trust from the ground up, then we can finally get to systems that, that we trust. And, you know, we can send out knowing that they're going to do what they're meant to do and, and not be compromised by uh, somebody who has different intentions for us. Yeah, I, absolutely. Again, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.